I don't know if you can tell, but I used to be a cheerleader for a very brief time in my school career. Uh, and the reason I stopped was partly because I couldn't do some of the things they all did, like, well, I won't mention them all. But anyway, and also because I felt very self-conscious in this very short skirt where, where you jumped, it changed colours from, because the pleats were brown and gold, and when you jumped, they went gold and all that. And also because there were cat fights in the changing rooms between the two cheerleading teams, because the role of the cheerleader is to frighten the opponents and also their cheerleaders, and to encourage the onlookers to cheer for your team and to encourage your team. Um, And so there was a lot of uh, aggression, and I'm not very good with aggression, and... um, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't last very long. But I did, I did enjoy the pom-poms on the shoes. That was the best bit. <laughs> anyway, the psalmist in this psalm, if you've got your Bibles there and your pews and you want to have it there to check that I'm actually preaching from Scripture, that would be great. Uh, or have it up here on the screen and, and just keep reading it as I go through. But this psalmist is really being a cheerleader. And he begins with a summons. And a mutual exhortation. Come, let us. He's not being vague about it. He's being quite clear that he wants his people, and he's quite specific about who his people are. His people are the people who know that God is the rock of their salvation. They're not just any old people. They're people who know that. They've experienced salvation. They've experienced God saving them from stuff bad stuff and uh, these are the people he's calling and saying come let us worship and um, you and I are those people we are those people who have had bad stuff happen or are in the midst of bad stuff and are experiencing the presence of the living God with us helping us endure or helping us overcome or break, giving us breakthroughs The psalmist says, he starts by saying in verse 1 and 2, he wants us to make an awful lot of noise. Um, And then he goes on to wanting us to be in awe in verse 6. And then in verse 7, he wants us to be quiet and to hear. So there there are many moods in this psalm. In fact, there are seven exhortations that he uses. Sing, shout, give thanks, extol, bow down kneel and hear seven exhortations to worship Sai spoke last week about singing and the singing was incredible after his sermon I thought (laughs) it changed drastically it was like the men all sort of thought yeah we sing it football we can sing (laughs) and it was wonderful to hear that release of energy as you all really belted it out but he, here the psalmist is talking about other things, shouting. We don't hear that very much in St. Michael's. I have been in Pentecostal churches where people do shout. Um, and I used to go to a charismatic fellowship church where all the men played rugby. And when it came to worship times, they would do um, press-ups on the floor and shout at the same time. <laughs> worship to God, which was quite shocking at first. Um, we do see bowing down here and kneeling. And um, often people aren't quite used to that if they're not Anglican, but to kneel at the communion rail, to kneel in your pew, 
is uh, the, the psalmist here encourages us to do that and to listen. What are the reasons for worship? When we grasp who the Lord is, it's then that we are moved to worship him. He's both the great God, our rock, the psalmist says, but he's also our God, our salvation. He saves us. I love that quote at the end of um, Titanic where Rose says, He saved me in every way possible. (coughs) Speaking of her first love. And I love that little phrase because I think that's what Jesus does. He saves us in every way possible. He's the great God, uh, the psalmist tells us. Supreme in heaven, king above all gods in verse 3. Supreme on the earth, the depths of the earth, the mountain peaks, the sea, the land. He's supreme over all those things in verses 4 and 5. Nothing is beyond the dominion of God. The hand that made the universe. I don't know if you've seen programs about the universe and what we know of it so far, but it is vast. And the hand that made the universe is still holding the universe together. But not only that, and most people on the earth believe in that God in some way or other, but they don't all know that he is our God, that he's personal. Majesty tempered with mercy, glory tempered with grace. The Lord, our maker, in verse 6, is our shepherd. He knows us by name. Jesus is our good shepherd. He came to reveal to us what God is like. Otherwise, we wouldn't really know. We would be like all the other peoples on the earth who know a bit about the nature of God. But because of Jesus coming, we know who he is, what he's like. He is the good shepherd and he knows you and I by name. I don't know if you remember the story of when Jesus was crucified and there were two men crucified with him. And it's in Luke chapter 23, if you wanted to just flick in your Bible to it. Um, but one, I'll read it to you, verses 49, 39 to 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence... We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Both men recognized who he was. Both men had a sense of a God. But only one of them really recognized who he was and entered into a personal relationship with him. He said, remember me. And Jesus said, I will. In fact, right now, you're going to be with me in paradise. When all this suffering is over, you're going to be with me. God Almighty knows you and me by name. He loves you and me. 
Isn't that amazing when you find it hard to love yourself? The God who created everything and is over all things loves you unconditionally. Because and he knows all about you. That, you know, he knows all the awful stuff, and he still loves you. <laughs> I always think it's incredible that he chose twelve men to establish the church, who all failed him, and ran away in his time of need. And he knew they would do that. He knew what they were like, and yet he still chose them, and still loved them. And when he when he talked to Peter, you know, he said to him, "Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep." Do you love me? And he, he restored him. The three times he denied Jesus, he restored him back. He didn't condemn him. He enabled him to do the things he knew he could do. This is the God that we have, who knows us by name, knows everything about us, and loves us. And we know this because of Jesus. The psalmist shows us that there are moods in worship, as I said at the beginning. And it's quite a mature way of doing things. If you look at a painting that isn't very mature or done very maturely by an artist, it will appear quite flat and there won't be a lot of depth in it. Um, with, with maturity comes layers and texture and um, nuances of a light and shade. And this is what the psalmist is saying, that in times of worship, we don't have to stick to one mood. As we become more mature together, we can go from being euphoric and exuberant because we're thinking about God being the great creator. And we can then go into a mood of awe and wonder, thinking of him as our shepherd who knows us by name. Or we can then move into that mood of attentive listening, that he's the great source of wisdom, understanding, love and power. And maybe then we go back into exuberant praise. You know, you can mix it all up. And what we love here at St. Michael's is that's what we're seeing happening. Or we can go from shouting and singing the praises of God and then into times of silent listening and attentiveness and awe and wonder. And I don't know about you, but my circumstances do affect my mood. And when we come together to worship... If we are under our circumstances and they're dictating to us, we will not be able to enter the moods of worship that we've read about here this morning. In order to do that, we need to focus on the attributes of God, even in difficult circumstances. I'm reading this book at the minute. Um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And he says in, in his introduction that uh, there have been three million copies of this book sold. And uh, being a new author myself, that's quite enviable. I'd love that. (laughs) But um, he says, this is the dry fact, and um, these are the dry facts, and they may well be the reason why reporters of American newspapers, and particularly of American TV stations, were often, more often than not, start their interviews after listening to these facts by explaining Claiming, Dr. Frankel, your book has become a true bestseller. How do you feel about such a success? Whereupon I react by reporting that in the first place I do not at all see in the bestseller status of my book an achievement and an accomplishment on my part, but rather an expression of the misery of our time. 
If hundreds of thousands of people reach for a book whose very title promises to deal with the question of a meaningful life, it must be a question that burns under their fingernails. And he's writing from his experiences in Auschwitz during World War II um, and thinking about how to help people cope in difficult times. And I was, as I've been reading this book, I've been thinking of another book by Corrie ten Boom, who was also in a concentration camp during World War II. And her sister Betsy taught her how to worship God, even in those terrible circumstances. And I remember particularly one instance where they were infested with fleas, and Corrie was very angry at God for allowing the fleas to make life even more miserable than it already was in the concentration camp. And Betsy said to her, no, we need to give thanks to the Lord for the fleas. And Corrie said, why on earth should I give thanks for the fleas? And Betsy said, because they keep the guards away and they, we get less beatings. <laughs> and uh, Betsy taught Corrie how to focus on the attributes of God in the midst of horrendous circumstances. I got a text from somebody very dear to me last night and uh, they said, I can't pray about the situation because I can't believe that a benevolent God exists or anything above exists. Now I could have preached back to her but instead I wrote, I totally understand exactly how you feel. And you and I if we've suffered in any way, need to be those that say to people asking the big questions of life, yeah, I've asked them too. I know how that feels. I know how it feels to be tempted to not believe anymore. But I have found the good shepherd who walks with me in my sufferings. I've found there is someone who does know me by name and loves me even when things are unbearable. Our circumstances may affect our mood, but as we gather to worship God, focusing on his character enables us to rise with the Holy Spirit, even in the circumstances, to either enjoy them more deeply if they're good, to endure them more resolutely if they're difficult, and to overcome them more courageously if they are unjust. What stops worship? A wandering heart, the psalmist tells us in verse 10, is what stops worship. Doubting his love, being tempted to doubt his love and his goodness, rebelling against him, refusing to let faith grow within us. Now faith is a gift, you cannot stir it up. You cannot make faith happen in you. It is a gift of God. We can pray that God would increase it. And there's lovely verses that says he will not snuff out a smoldering wick. You won't break a bruised reed. So even if your faith is smoldering, he can stir it into life if you ask. But we've all probably experienced at one time or another that temptation for our hearts to wander. The psalmist refers to the people of Israel uh, wandering in the desert for 40 years. And uh, they complained and argued and grumbled. And... Um, 
it actually caused feelings of revulsion in God's heart towards them because they kept grumbling and complaining and arguing with Moses. And the reason was, uh, in this instance, was particularly over water. That's the most basic thing we need to live, isn't it? And they didn't have water. And I don't know about you, but I probably would have been tempted to grumble and complain and argue too if I didn't have water and I was in a desert. But they continued to do it, even though they'd seen God provide for them in the past and they hadn't remained faithful to his attributes. They hadn't continued to trust and believe that he was good in the face of difficult circumstances. We're told in Psalm 14 that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I don't know if you guys have read the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis. Anybody read those? I love them. I fell in love with Jesus through Aslan, the lion. (laughs) Anybody who's not read them, go and read them. (laughs) Then you know what I'm talking about. But there's a character called Susan, who's one of the family of four children that uh, figure in these books. And Susan is a queen in Narnia for a time. But in the last battle, which is the last book of the series, Susan is conspicuous by her absence. Peter says, her brother says of her, she's no longer a friend of Narnia. And another person, Jill, says, she's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons, lipstick, and invitations. Similarly, Eustace says, Uh, quotes her as saying, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children, referring to Aslan and Narnia. And another character, Polly, says, she wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now, and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. (laughs) Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life, as quick as she can, and then stop there as long as she can. (laughs) Thus, Susan does not enter the real Narnia with the others at the end of the series. And it's left ambiguous, however, whether or not Susan's absence is permanent. Susan's heart wandered. That's what C.S. Lewis is illustrating. She was distracted by the things of this world. And uh, they promised much, but delivered very little. don't fall into the same trap as Susan and be distracted by things that appeal to yourself, your selfish desires. Augustine of Hippo uh, said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. We'll all have that restlessness and the world shouts out loads of things that says, oh, I'll sate your restlessness. I'll give you rest. I'll comfort you. If you have me, you'll have everything you need. But they deliver so little. And those of us who have gone into the world to seek out those things know that to be true. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. We need to be those who keep ourselves at rest in Jesus who come back to him again and again in the difficult times especially. Is your heart restless? Is it being tempted to wander? Come for prayer today when you come for communion and ask Jesus to enable you to be steadfast and true. Ask him to send his Holy Spirit 
to give you fresh faith, to increase your faith so that you can be led by him in his way. Amen.